Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a regular delve into a tale of true crime that I strive to ensure more often than not that it isn't a familiar tale, or tales, and that may be a long-forgotten one, perhaps almost an unbelievable account, but which are all true, and that I've scoured the UK and Ireland to bring to you. Doing so is myself, Paul, the creator, host, and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The world's smallest cow, my beloved true crime enthusiast cat, Pixie, is here with me as he always is. And completing us are the main reason me and he spend so much time in my spare room. The wonderful enthusiasts that keep the show striving forward, and my passion and pleasure to do. It is as wonderful as always having you join us today, which I thank you very much for doing so, and I hope that as you have, then it's for an episode that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. Now, because I have two lengthy accounts that make up the episode this time around, there won't be too much preamble. Boom! We're just down to the tales in question, faster than Philip Schofield's career goes down the pan. And for the accounts this time around, we go back further than we normally would on the show. Now, I have fairly recently done a Patreon episode entitled Murder Under Cover of War that unsurprisingly deals with cases that took place during the Second World War. The cases included there were both tales that I found fascinating and they were well received at the time. As I've said often before, I think it's good to do stuff out of the norm sometimes and whilst I was researching them, I came across several other accounts that I thought, oh, I'm having that for a tale. Because murder doesn't take a patriotic break after all, does it? So, the accounts I bring this time around are two of a similar ilk. Both deal with savage and senseless murder, both take place during wartime, and I hope that you'll see the tenuous, very tenuous, I promise you, but sometimes, I kid you not, I formulate an episode around a title that I dream up, or the most random coincidence will pull the tales together, similar to an episode I did some time ago called Spurned Hearns. So I hope you'll see the tenuous link between them that has led to the episode being entitled as it is. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving descriptions of a sexual nature that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always, please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled Blame it on the book. For our first account, we're off to the town of Ashford in the county of Kent, England's oldest county, and back to 1942. Notable facts about Ashford and its surrounding areas are that the nearby village of Pluckley, where we visited before on the show in one of the Corona bonus episodes, The Enigma of Enfield Lodge, Pluckley is reportedly the UK's most haunted village. Ashford has the oldest surviving St. John's ambulance unit. It's where the first white lines on British roads were painted there, on the London to Folkestone Road, way back in 1918. And famous people it spawned include former footballer Neil Razor Ruddock, author Frederick Forsyth, vocalist of rock band Bring Me the Horizon, yeah, not a massive fan at all, to be honest, but Ollie Sykes, and grimly, the late Richard Huckle, who was dubbed Britain's most depraved paedophile, 
sure could question that as well, until he himself was murdered in prison in October 2019. And you never know what may pop up on the show in the future. It was also in Ashford on Wednesday the 17th of May 1911 that Maggie Smale, the first daughter of George Stratton and Elizabeth Ellen Smale, was born, just a year after the couple had married. A sister, Daisy Ellen, followed on Wednesday the 13th of August 1913, but tragically, just over three months later, on Tuesday the 18th of November, their mother Ellen died, leaving their father, an engine driver, now facing life without his beloved wife and having two very young children to raise to boot. Now fortunately, George was blessed with a large family and so the girls remained in the care of these siblings as they grew up, the sisters developing a very close relationship as they did so. This was to prove invaluable for as on Tuesday the 1st of January 1929, in what wasn't to herald a very happy new year for them, their father died also, leaving the teenagers orphaned at just 18 and 16. By this time, Maggie, or Mitzi, as she was known to her loved ones and friends, had found work after leaving school as a clerk in the Ashford branch of Lloyd's Bank, and Daisy working the suburban and county newsagents, eventually working her way up to manager there. And by 1936, with both girls in their mid-twenties, They'd set up home together in a small flat above a newsagent at number 59 Beaver Road in the town, only a short distance from the home of their aunt and uncle, Albert and Beatrice Smale, who they would see regularly. Maggie and Daisy shared the same pursuits and interests that other young women of the time did, and were friends as well as siblings, often going out together to the cinema or dances, though it has to be said it was Daisy who had the greater love of the latter, Maggie equally as happy having a night in. When the Second World War broke out, although such dances were not as frequent due to air raids and the like, when they did occur, the sisters would almost always be there, and at which they met a succession of soldiers who were billeted near the town. Now it doesn't seem that either sister was particularly serious with any of these, although Daisy did have a regular dance partner she'd had a friendship with for some time since before the war. It was at one such dance at the Ashford Corn Exchange in November 1941 that they'd gone to, that Daisy was to encounter a soldier, Private Cyril Johnson, who was to bring further tragedy into the life of her and his sister. Following his basic training, Having served with B Company of the 2nd and 5th Battalion West Yorkshire Regiment, Prince of Wales Zone, part of the 46th Division for almost two years, Private Johnson was by November 1941 billeted at Y, just outside Ashford, and where at a dance one evening, he'd met and befriended Maggie and Daisy Smales. He'd particularly befriended Daisy, who took pity on the young soldier after he came out with a story of how heartbroken he was because his former fiancée, a young woman named Muriel Lillian Golding, had broken off their engagement only a few months before, in October 1941. Thereafter, Johnson and the two sisters became regular acquaintances and he'd visited their flat on a number of occasions, without him telling them 
that he was at the time involved with two other girls in the area and was regularly writing to another in Norfolk. On the afternoon of Thursday the 5th of February 1942, Johnson arrived at the girls' flat unannounced. It transpired he was on a period of leave at the time and rather than head back to his billet that Thursday, had decided that he wouldn't until early on the Friday morning. He brought his dancing shoes and a change of clothes with him and had asked Daisy if she would head out to a dance with him that evening, to which she agreed, perhaps a bit put on the spot by his sudden arrival, but had to return to work for a few hours beforehand and so left him alone in their flat. When she returned from work a few hours later, she returned to Johnson sleeping in an armchair in the front room, a book by his side, a 1935 detective novel called A Question of Proof by author Nicholas Blake, concerning the murder of an unpopular pupil who had been strangled at a boarding school. Now, point of note, Nicholas Blake was a pseudonym for an author named Cecil Day-Lewis, who's the father of actor Daniel Day-Lewis, Bill the Butcher and Christy Brown and all that, and who also went on to later become Poet Laureate. Johnson and Daisy then got ready to go out, having a drink as they did so, and when Maggie shortly afterwards returned home from work, she declined the invitation to join them at the dance, tired after a day and wanting just to wind down instead. When they were out, Daisy was to recall later that Johnson was enjoying himself at the dance, chucking a good shape out, but he seemed less than enthusiastic about returning to his billet that evening. In fact, he was quite down about it, and after having missed the last train, asked Daisy if he could spend the night at their flat, to which she agreed on the condition that Johnson sleep on the sofa. She also made it clear to him that she had work early the next morning, and on the way home from the dance, persuaded Johnson to go via the railway station to find out what time his train would be leaving the following morning. Politely, but firmly not wanting someone to outstay their welcome, I'm sure that you know what I mean. A porter there told Johnson that the first train back to the camp at Y would be 8am the following morning, and so Daisy explained to the soldier that as she and Maggie would long be in work by then, he could still stay, but would have to wake himself up and could help himself to breakfast and tea, to which he agreed. When they arrived back at the flat at 11.20pm, however, Maggie was just getting ready for bed, and was surprised to see Johnson there with Daisy, at first thinking, concerned, that he'd deserted his unit. Daisy reassured her that he would be getting the first train in the morning, and placated by this, Maggie then went off to bed. Daisy, meanwhile, made cocoa for herself and her companion, and whilst he made himself comfortable on the sofa, she headed off to bed herself, the two sisters sharing a bedroom and a bed. Daisy was up at 5.30am to go to work, and although Maggie had stirred whilst Daisy got ready, and it's impossible not to wake someone when you're deliberately trying to be quiet, isn't it? Maggie had soon gone back to sleep. Daisy prepared a spot of breakfast for her and Johnson and left it in the kitchen, then silently made her way out of the house, trying not to disturb anyone further. Just after 9am, Daisy had returned home briefly from the newsagent, 
and noted from the washing up that only one person had had the breakfast she'd left. And so, concerned that something was wrong, and further, that Johnson may have slept in instead of returning to camp, checked in the sitting room but found no sign of him. The only thing remaining of his was the book he'd been reading, which was left half-read and open on page 114, upside down on the fireside curb. At this, Daisy wondered then if perhaps Maggie was still in bed unwell, and so made her way into the bedroom to check. As she entered the room, Daisy noticed that there was a figure lying prone in the bed, the covers pulled up right over the face, and gently approaching and removing the covers, with ever-growing horror, saw the ghastly wounds Maggie had suffered, and the blood that stained her sister's face. It was only then that she noticed that the poker from the living room lay on the floor next to the bed. Terrified, Daisy ran out of the flat and went to the chemist's next door to raise the alarm and to fetch the pharmacist, Edward Brotherton, who immediately went with the hysterical girl up to the flat and found that Maggie was indeed dead, but her body was still very warm. He telephoned for police to attend, and only shortly afterwards, Police Sergeant Arthur Bones, what a great name or what, eh? was on the scene. He removed the scarf from around Maggie's throat, which he later described as being very tightly wound, and most likely for the benefit of Daisy, commenced with artificial respiration, although of course it was of no use, and this was confirmed with the arrival of Dr. Reginald Hastings-Jones on the scene shortly afterwards that Maggie was indeed sadly dead. Her body was then transported to the Kent and Canterbury Hospital in Canterbury, where later that afternoon, a post-mortem was conducted by pathologist Dr Norman Henry Ashton. He described later how though the wounds to Maggie's skull, which had been inflicted upon her as she lay on her back, were severe and would most likely have resulted in death, an x-ray had revealed a dislocated hyoid bone in her neck, which Dr Ashton was very clear had been caused by a ligature, the scarf that had been wound around her neck. He found no evidence of any attempt of manual strangulation whatsoever. Police soon managed to extract from a tearful daisy details of their house guest the previous evening, and that he would most likely have gone back to his billet at Y some five miles away. So with Johnson the primary person of interest, for there was no sign of any forced entry to the girl's flat, he was indeed traced back to his camp, and where at 8pm the same evening, he was arrested on suspicion of the murder of Maggie Smales by Detective Sergeant Harry Drury. He offered no resistance, and at the time of his arrest, Drury stated later that dance music could be heard emanating from a radio in a nearby room, and Johnson had remarked, somewhat gloomily, I don't suppose I'll ever dance to one of those again. Indeed, I don't think so either, mate. Once he was in custody, Johnson admitted the killing, but claimed that it had happened in a moment of madness and though gave a statement concerning what had happened, professed that it was a crime of passion rather than the cold-blooded, brutal assault and murder that it was. When charged with Maggie's murder, he simply replied, 
I had no intention of killing her. I lost my head. Johnson was to claim in his later statement, after explaining how he'd been allowed to stay at the girl's flat and sleeping on the sofa. The following morning, Miss Daisy Smale went to work, leaving Miss Maggie Smale in bed. At 7.15am, I went to Miss Maggie Smale's bedroom to ask her the time. I asked her if she would like me to get in bed with her, and she said, no. So I lost my temper and knocked her down on the bed. She started to struggle, and I put my hands round her neck with the intention of frightening her. I must have squeezed her too hard and held on too long, for she lost consciousness. I think I lost my head altogether then. I tied a scarf, which was hanging on the bed rail, around her neck. I then went into the sitting room and took up a poker which was lying there. Then I went back and hit her on the head with it. Afterwards, I went downstairs and had a cup of tea. I left the building altogether then and proceeded to Y, where I spent the rest of the day. What Johnson had neglected to say was that before Maggie's skull had been shattered by two heavy blows from the fireside poker, Johnson had removed her pyjama bottoms, had pushed her top up and had attempted to rape her before he tied the red woolen scarf that was hanging from the bed rail in a double granny knot around her throat and had literally choked the remaining life out of the unfortunate woman. He had then indeed had the breakfast that Daisy had left for him, had even washed up after himself, had helped himself to a blue writing pad belonging to Daisy, and had sat and written two short letters, then gathered his belongings and left the flat. Cyril Johnson had been born on Monday the 5th of September 1921 in Oxford Road in the Bolton district of Horwich, the fourth child of Charles and Elsie May Johnson. He was one of eight children born to the couple. There was no Netflix and chill back then, it was just skip right to the chill. And already had two sisters and a brother by the time he came out of his egg, Hilda, Ernest and Evelyn, with two brothers, Arthur and Clifford, and two sisters, Joyce and Ruth, following in the next 11 years. Now during her pregnancy with Cyril, his mother Elsie had been involved in two accidents, firstly falling the entire way down the steps of the local town hall, and in the second, just three weeks before Cyril was born, in August 1921, a chimney had collapsed at the family's three-storey home, with parts of the ceiling falling in on her. Physically, there was no injury to the baby, but the birth was reportedly a difficult one, and following this, if it even did have any relevance at all, from when he was born, Cyril was claimed to suffer from hysterical fits of crying, and in his early years, bouts of extreme anxiety. His schooling was unremarkable, and after leaving school at the age of 14, he worked firstly as an errand boy for a local butcher, before finding work as a piercer at a Bolton cotton mill. It seemed that this was work that he didn't enjoy very much, and being unhappy in such a crowded home, had previously run away on several occasions with a view of going to sea, though not getting very far each time, and so it seemed that a different career in life may be better for him, one away from the industries and factories of the Bolton area. With his parents' permission then, at age 17, he joined the army, 
with perhaps both sides thinking that the discipline and installed sense of teamwork that Force's life brings may be the making of the lad. And indeed, he went on to have a good army record and was noted as being a capable soldier, though he wasn't to see any overseas action. But the camaraderie that's so important, and indeed, to many, will be the best part of life in the forces, certainly was with me. It was something lacking with Johnson, as he was not popular with his comrades. Somewhat of a loner, indeed, he seemed to lack the interest in soldiering that the others of his company had, and instead was more interested, vastly more, in going out to dances and meeting women whenever he could, which was, of course, how he'd met Daisy and Maggie Smales. But the two brief letters I mentioned that he'd sat and wrote, almost immediately after committing brutal murder, and which Johnson had posted both of on his way to catch a train back to camp in Y, each show a chilling mindset to Cyril Johnson. The first letter he'd written to his ex-fiancee Muriel Golden, who was at the time living at Fences Farm in Stowbridge, near Kings Lynn in Norfolk, and which read as follows. Dear Muriel, by the time you get this letter, you will see in the papers an account of me doing a murder. All I want to say first is this. I'm in love with you, and for the last four months since you jilted me, I've lived in hell. You made me hate females. The girl I've just killed was teasing me, just like you did. That is why I did it, and because I hate women. Love, Cyril. Now how chilling is it that someone sits and writes a letter immediately after committing murder with that bloodlust still prevalent in them? Literally, the girl I've just killed like a minute or two ago. Wow. The second letter was sent to a female friend of Johnson's, a woman named Vera Ward, who lived in Pinfold, Maine, in Northwold in Norfolk. And although it was similar in tone, was slightly more convivial, and which read, Dear Vera, by the time you get this, you will have seen in the papers what I have done, and I did it because I hate women. It seems queer, doesn't it, after being so friendly with you? But all I can say is thank you for being so good to me, for you're the only one I don't hate. Goodbye, Cyril. P.S. Think of me after I've gone which, after confessing to murder in the 40s, wouldn't be too long, really. Appearing at Ashford Police Court on Monday the 23rd of February 1942, Johnson was remanded in custody until his case could be heard in the High Court. He was transferred from Maidstone Jail to Brixton Prison on Wednesday the 4th of March in preparation for his Old Bailey trial and whilst here was interviewed by the prison medical officer Dr Hugh Grierson, who found that the soldier was quite rational and well-behaved, engaged well in conversation, ate and slept quite normally, and showed no signs of any mental impairment, meaning there was no reason that Johnson could not answer the charge against him. The trial took place before Mr Justice Croom Johnson on Friday the 20th of March 1942. There was no hanging about on remand back then. And in which the prosecution, led by Edward George Roby Casey, 
put forward a particularly strong case. James Davidson, a technician at the Metropolitan Police Laboratory at Hendon, had examined blood, hairs and seminal stains found at the scene and on the battle dress of Johnson that he'd been arrested in, all of which clearly indicated the vicious sexual assault that the soldier had carried out upon Maggie. And his statement, plus the letters he'd written to Muriel Golding and Vera Ward, were as good as a signed confession anyway. Well, the statement was. However, when she was called as a witness, Muriel Golding told the court that Johnson had not seemed as devastated as he made out when she'd called off their engagement, and that he'd even told her that he'd been expecting it. In response to being asked why she'd broken off their engagement, Muriel told the court, I found Cyril Johnson out in various needless lies, and he was very spiteful. Also, he wouldn't tell me anything about his home life or his parents. He tried to domineer my ways and he was very jealous, so that I took a dislike for him and thought it best that we should part. In fact, I got so I used to dread him coming to the house. There was no other reason than that, I have to say that he behaved himself all of the time he was with me. The defence, however, led by Hector Hughes Casey, argued that Johnson had been temporarily insane at the time of the murder hinting at manslaughter rather than murder, and suggested that the cause of his actions that February morning may have stemmed from the detective novel he'd been reading, A Question of Proof. Indeed, a couple of extracts from the book were suggested as being the direct cause. One such extract, on page 43, read, Dear me, dear me, he exclaimed, most extraordinary and uh, tragic. No question about it, I'm afraid murder or manslaughter. He seems to have been throttled first by his assailant's hands, these bruises you see, then a thin cord tied around his neck. You will observe the red line, it has sunk in rather deeply. Hasn't quite got that panache of Holmes, has it? Another, on page 92, read, They might have pretended to throttle him or garrote him with a cord, but the medical evidence suggests that he was first strangled with hands and then the cord tied around to make certain. Now these passages, it was claimed, may have somehow inspired the young soldier to commit murder and although this seems a stretch, there seemed to be little explanation for the sudden attack other than he had gone out of his mind after reading about a fictional crime. He was friends with Daisy and was an acquaintance of his sister. Indeed, he had never shown the slightest interest or attention to Maggie. So why would he attack her? It made no sense. Could a book be to blame? Murder really does make sense though, does it? Hector Hughes, addressing the jury on behalf of Johnson, said, There is no question that the accused did the act with which he is charged. There is no question that he did kill Miss Maggie Smale. The question you will have to try, in my submission, is Was he not insane at the time he committed that act? In my submission, he was insane. It is a dreadful case. The killing was a dreadful killing, and the very dreadfulness of it indicates that such an act could not be perpetrated by a sane man. It was a frightfully desperate act, 
and I do not seek to minimize the horror of it. I emphasize the horror of it and venture to suggest that you must come to the conclusion that no sane man could have done it. He must have been insane at that particular moment, and I invite you to return a verdict of guilty, but insane. Summing up, Mr Justice Croom Johnson invited the jury, on the question of Johnson's sanity, to go back prior to the testimony of Johnson's father to see what they knew about him, saying, Did you hear a single suggestion made to Miss Daisy Smale that this young man on that evening was abnormal, did not know what he was doing, and did not appreciate the difference between right and wrong, or was other than an ordinary person? Was there anything in the letters he wrote to indicate that immediately afterwards he did not appreciate the difference between right and wrong? If you come to the conclusion that the defence is not made out, go back to the evidence of the prosecution and make up your minds beyond any reasonable doubt as to whether this charge has been brought home to the prisoner. On Friday the 27th of March 1942, after deliberation for an hour and ten minutes, the brief return to the court to clarify the definition of malice aforethought and premeditation, specifically the length of time before the act takes place to ensure a murder charge, the jury found Johnson guilty of the murder of Maggie Smales, although recommended mercy be shown to him, citing his young age as he was just 20 years old and was a serving soldier. Mr Justice Croom Johnson disagreed with this suggestion, however, and donning the traditional black cap, sentenced Cyril Johnson to death, to which the youthful-looking Johnson, clad in the walking-out uniform of his regiment, stood rigidly gripping the front of the dock with both hands, but said nothing in response before walking away calmly with prison officers. In a letter to the Home Secretary dated the same day, the judge wrote, The jury recommended this convict to mercy on account of his youth. The defence was insanity, but, in my judgment, there was nothing in this point, and it was rightly negatived by the presiding jury in their verdict. The case was a sex one, and the offence was committed in circumstances of great brutality, apparently in the course of a rape on a dead girl, and I do not find myself able to endorse the jury's recommendation. An appeal against Johnson's conviction was filed, but was ultimately abandoned on the 31st of March. It seems that over those four days, Johnson had acknowledged his guilt, and instead now began petitioning the Home Office for his death sentence to be commuted to one of life imprisonment. Several letters in Home Office records, mainly from clergy members in his hometown of Horwich, show that there were hopeful petitions for his death sentence to be commuted thus, giving various reasons as to why this should be, including the respectability of his family, Johnson's youth and the madness of the act, the jury's recommendation for mercy for him, even down to a plea for clemency due to the fact that his mother was suffering from cancer at the time. Each of these letters is also filed with a copy of a personally addressed reply from the office of then Home Secretary Herbert Morrison, and all of which say the same thing, that he had considered the case carefully and had found no reason why the law should not run its course. 
Therefore, Mr Justice Croom Johnson's decision was upheld, and at 9am on the morning of Wednesday the 15th of April 1942, Private 4538424 Cyril Johnson was hanged at Wandsworth Prison by execution of Thomas Pierpoint and his assistant Henry Critchell before being buried later the same day within the prison grounds. Daisy Smale tried to pick up her life as best as she could following her sister's murder and the following year, on Saturday the 6th of November 1943, married a man named Raymond Matthew Mount. But from then on, until her own death on Tuesday the 18th of June 1996, she would rarely speak of her sister's murder, unjustly blaming herself for the crime, before she too was buried alongside her sister and parents at Ashford Cemetery. For the second and final account of the episode, we're off to the town of Keithley in West Yorkshire. Now a couple of things about Keithley. In 2020, it was perhaps unfairly voted the seventh worst place to live in England. Couldn't tell you, never been there. The Keithley and Worth Valley Railway has been used in several films, including the Pink Floyd film, The Wall. It has the note of having the world's first recorded town twinning in 1920 when it was twinned with the commune of Poi de Nord in northern France. And notable people to hail from there include former Labour Party spin doctor and rogue Alistair Campbell, somebody that we've met before on the show, the one-legged train spotter himself, killer and kidnapper Michael Sams, and the legend, pure legend, that was Captain Sir Tom Moore, Covid hero Captain Tom. There was once a pub in Keithley in the Clayton Heights area named the Nags Head, although it ceased functioning as one about 15 years ago. Many years ago, during the Second World War, the proprietor there was a lady named Jane Colton, who'd been in the innkeeping business almost all of her life, but a life that was filled with heartache. Born Jane Smith on the 30th of March 1875, the daughter of James and Elizabeth Smith, her father, having worked in a local woollen mill, gave that up and became the licensee of the Royal Oak Pub in Keithley, and as soon as Jane was old enough to, she too worked as bar staff there, until on Tuesday the 1st of January 1896, she married a local farmer named Joseph Heaton, though her married life was, sadly, a very short-lived one, as Joseph passed away in November of the same year at age just 23, due to enteric fever. To pick up her life, Jane returned to her family at the Royal Oak, but where further tragedy was to strike just two years later, when her father passed away in September 1897, at the age of 48. Her brother Arthur took over as the licensed publican of the Royal Oak, and Jane continued to help run the business as best as she could, which I think is instilled in you. If you work in a pub for a certain time, you soon get to know the business off by heart, and you soon become polished at it. Another man was to enter Jane's life soon, a man named Andrew Coulton, and he too was no stranger to tragedy. He'd married a woman named Julia Holmes in 1905, but she had sadly passed away in 1915 at the age of 34. 
leaving Andrew to raise the couple's only child, a daughter named Edith, who was then just eight years old. Andrew and Jane soon afterwards met, became a couple, and soon were running the Royal Oak together, marrying on Tuesday the 3rd of December 1918. And for many years this was harmonious, right up until February 1930, when Andrew was fined a total of £3 for selling intoxicating liquor during non-permitted hours, a casualty of the one time in a hundred when police and brewery staff did bother about a lock-in. It seems that this fine impacted upon his publican's licence, and the family were forced to leave the Royal Oak pub after being in residence there for more than 30 years. However, you can never keep a publican down for long, and on Wednesday the 1st of July 1931, the family took over as licensees of the Hope and Anchor pub at Horton, though this was only to last for a relatively short period of time, as on Wednesday the 4th of January 1933, the family moved once again, this time taking over the Nag's Head on Highgate Road in Clayton Heights. Now after such unsettled times, you'd hope that fate would finally give the family somewhat of a break, but it was not to be, as in February 1936, Andrew passed away also. Following this, Jane stayed in the Nag's Head alone, taking over as licensee herself, and running a strict yet efficient and prosperous hostelry, where she was very well liked. Though as time went on, she confided in those closest to her that running the pub was beginning to get a bit much for her at her age. Nonetheless, she continued to run it until the 20th of September 1944, when fate dealt a similar tragic hand. On Thursday the 21st of September, as the troops of the British 1st Airborne Division fought in the Netherlands town of Arnheim, at 6.45am, it was the incessant barking of Jane's white fox terrier dog Judy that signalled that something may be wrong at the nag's head. The pub had been closed for a short period due to a shortage of available cask beer, although Jane would sell regular customers a bottle of Webster's Ale at the back door of the pub, and indeed had done so as late as 9.45pm the previous evening. And so a concerned neighbour, Hilda Granger, knowing this, thought it was unusual to hear the dog sounding so distressed. From her bedroom window, she could see lights on in the pub's kitchen, and so, gathering her brother to investigate with her, they approached the rear of the inn, noticing as they did so that both the kitchen window and a glass panel in the back door, though it was still locked, were broken. Finding no response to their repeated calls, they roused another neighbour to fetch Jane Summerfield, a part-time cleaner at the pub and a key holder, and by the time she arrived, the Grangers were waiting by the back door with police constable Frank Thorpe. Upon gaining access, they noticed Judy barking incessantly at the top of the stairs, and after performing a cursory search downstairs, PC Thorpe began searching the bedrooms. The main and second bedrooms of the pub had been completely ransacked, and heading into the third, which was at the front of the pub, Thorpe discovered the lifeless body of Jane Colton, by that time 69 years of age, lying lifeless in her dishevelled bed. 
She had one of her own stockings wound tightly around her neck, and beneath her head lay her empty purse, a few old coins no longer in circulation scattered around it. A later post-mortem, performed by Dr. Ralph Rimmer, revealed Jane's cause of death as asphyxia, while severe bruising to the right side of her face indicated that she'd been struck a severe blow before death, most likely being punched or kicked after waking or being woken up. Investigating officers called to the scene quickly found blood spots on the outside and inside kitchen window frame, through which it appeared that Jane's killer had effected entry, supported by the presence of footprints on the draining board of the sink, alongside the stones that had been used to smash them, and the fact that the back door was still secured from the inside with two bars and a top bolt that was so stiff it needed a hammer to secure the lever in and out of place. More blood staining was found in Jane's bedroom, on the wallpaper and the counterpane of Jane's bed, quite near her head, as well as on her left ear. Blood that was ultimately determined to be the killer's own, as it was identified as being that of blood group A. Whereas Jane had no open wounds to her body, and her blood group was that of group B. There were also marks found on the door jamb of the bar door downstairs, which was found still locked and which appeared to have been made with a small, sharp object in an unsuccessful attempt to try and force the door. Though the upstairs bedrooms had been hurriedly ransacked, all that was later determined to be missing were the contents of her purse, bar a single sovereign, her jewellery, consisting of a few necklaces, three valuable rings and two brooches, two pairs of scissors and an electric torch. The empty cloth cash bag that was thought to have contained the pub's takings, albeit which would have been largely empty anyway as the pub had been closed for a few days, was also found near to Jane's body. However, it transpired that the majority of the pub's takings were always kept in a locked drawer in Jane's bedroom, as was her habit to do so, and the killer had evidently not found these, for £119 in notes was found in the still locked drawer when it was opened. The cloth bag would always only carry silver. Detective Superintendent John O'Hara took over the investigation, and following police inquiries at the nearby Westwood Military Hospital, which was in half a mile of the pub, it was quickly established that the main line of inquiry they were following was to trace a soldier who had recently been a patient there, but who had been absent without leave since the afternoon prior to the murder. Private 2940127 Arthur Thompson, from Bootle, a member of the General Service Corps stationed at the New Grammar School in Bradford, but who had been seen near the pub the night before the murder, and once again at about 2am on the 21st of September, back at the hospital, where he'd been distributing coins, 11 shillings apiece, to two patients there, Private William Lillycrap and Trooper Lawrence Hayes on the pretext of it being repayment for a gambling debt that he owed them, though both men were mystified by this, as Thompson owed either of them nothing. Instructions for him to be traced and interviewed were given, and a report in the Bradford Telegraph and Argus newspaper describes him as 36 years of age, 5 feet 9 inches in height, with dark hair, grey-green eyes, a sallow complexion, and heavily built. 
He was dressed in ordinary battle dress with a forage cap and the GSC made of Bakelite. Police were soon inundated with sightings of Thompson and were able to track his exact movements, so much so that Detective Superintendent O'Hara issued the following statement on the 23rd of September. It is now believed that Thompson may be wearing a plain dark grey worsted suit, single-breasted with three buttons on the jacket. The suit is of the utility type but has turn-ups on the trousers. He may also have on a tweed overcoat, light grey in colour, with a herringbone pattern. He's thought to be wearing odd shoes. This clothing is slightly worn. The following day, Thompson was arrested at the Globe Hotel at Overton, near Morecambe, in Lancashire. Officers who'd been called noted that the man had cuts to his hand that were partially healed, which he was to claim had been caused by himself with a razor blade, and were unsatisfied with the identification documents he provided when asked, each having been crudely altered to show the name Reed, and so Thompson, for it was indeed him, was taken to the nearby village of Haysham by police car. During the very short journey, for it was only like three miles away, Thompson requested that the car window be opened, which was denied, as was a further request he made that the car stop and he be allowed to relieve himself. When he arrived at Haysham, in his pockets officers found £2 4 shillings in small change, two £1 notes, a blood-stained handkerchief, a small pair of scissors and an ID card, a medical card and a discharge certificate in the name of Kidd, which had been crudely altered to Reed. He at first professed that he was indeed named Reed, telling officers, You keep me much longer, I shall sue you for unlawful arrest. The longer you keep me, the more you'll pay. However, he soon changed tack and shortly afterwards admitted, Tell the sergeant I am Arthur Thompson and I've deserted from my unit in Bradford. Last time I was there was last Wednesday and I posted some papers, visited some pubs and had beer. Thompson was unable to give a satisfactory account of his movements over the previous few days and was cautioned, which he refused to sign. He claimed that the reason he was so flush with cash in the early hours of the morning of the murder is that he'd gone out just before 7pm the previous evening with a pair of boots, 50 cigarettes, a cardigan and 8 bars of chocolate, all of which he claimed he'd raffled off in pubs on Bradford's Manchester Road, and which he'd made over £10 from doing so. He was then informed that he answered the description of a man who had, at Burnley a few days before, attempted to sell the licensee of the Barrack Tavern there a diamond ring to which he replied, Not a chance, it was not me that offered that ring for sale. And then, in a penny drop moment, it was recalled that Thompson had made a song and dance about having the car window opened and then for the car to stop. And so, acting on a hunch, officers went back to the police car that he'd been brought to Haysham in. Searching it, underneath the mat in the rear where he'd been sitting, were discovered two brooches and two very distinctive rings, one with a medium-sized opal and small diamonds surrounding it, and a cluster ring with five diamonds and a medium-sized one in the centre. 
The rings matched the description of two of those that had been stolen from Jane Colton. Following this discovery, when asked to account for the jewellery found in the car, Thompson had replied, Just say, I don't know anything about them. Police were having none of this though, and Thompson was then told that he would be taken into custody and transported to Bradford, where he would be charged with the willful murder of Jane Colton. He repeatedly claimed that he didn't know the murdered woman, and said in response when he was charged the following morning, Murder? Not me. I'm not guilty of this charge. With Thompson duly charged and remanded in custody then, the unfortunate Jane Colton's funeral was held two days later, on Wednesday the 27th of September, with her coffin lying in state in the music room of the pub she loved so much, and a service conducted there that was packed with friends of hers from the licensing trade, so many attending that a procession even walked in front of the hearse on the way to her interment at Oakworth Church. Such was her popularity. She later left the sum of £3,162 in her will to his stepdaughter Edith and her husband, Herbert Scarborough. And the man now awaiting trial for her murder? Arthur Thompson was born in Lancaster in 1910, the fifth child of Frederick Michael and Margaret Ellen Thompson. His father was a well-known antiques dealer who eventually settled in Grange Oversands in Cumbria and who was to sire in total nine siblings for Arthur, his sisters Eva, Alice and Ellen and his brother Frederick preceding him with five more, brother Henry, sister Marjorie, twins Dorothy and Ivy and another sister, Nora, following in the next six years. However, during her last pregnancy, Margaret had become ill with stomach cancer and just four weeks after giving birth to Nora, on Boxing Day 1916, Margaret was to pass away, leaving her husband with nine children under working age to care for. Arthur attended school until 1926, upon when he joined the army, serving with the Royal Sussex Regiment. However, this was not to be a long career, as he was discharged four years later following a conviction he obtained for larceny. Following his discharge from the army, Arthur found work at a jewellery store in Kendall in Cumbria and for the next eight years travelled all around the country buying and selling gold jewellery, specifically old gold. But the combination of the business that he was now in, his own character and his family life were to see him up in court on no less than 14 occasions over the years for offences ranging from theft to assault. I say family life, for with Thompson, it really was a case of the apple not falling too far from the tree, as his father, Frederick Michael Thompson, often found himself in court as well. In 1922, he was in court in Bradford for selling fake Chippendale furniture. You could always tell that because the bow tie was the wrong colour on it. And then two and a half years later, in January 1925, was back before a judge again this time for attempting to sell fake copies of Van Dyke's Our Saviour and Rubens's Madonna and Child, which he claimed he'd found in a shed. Yeah, you leave stuff like that lying about in the shed, don't you? To an American collector for the sum of £27,000 that he'd valued the two paintings at. 
Several other short prison sentences followed this, including on charges of defrauding, theft and assault, and eventually, Frederick found himself a resident in the Cumberland and Westmoreland Mental Hospital in Carlisle, where he died in April 1940. So, with such a role model, Arthur Thompson's later case papers give several examples of his behaviour. In 1934, whilst in Belfast, he went into a shop to buy a selection of articles that were alleged to be gold, but on discovering that they were as gold as chocolate coin is, Thompson picked up a hammer and attacked the would-be seller with it. The following year, whilst interrupted in the middle of a burglary and being challenged by the owner, not even dressed like Adamant, he had said, your money or your life, before putting his hand inside his coat as if he had a weapon there, and so successfully fleeing. Five years later, in 1940, he'd robbed a shop in his hometown and had threatened the shopkeeper there by saying, Give me the till, there are two men over the other side with a gun. He avoided the nick by the skin of his teeth for things like this, and soon afterwards moved to Bootle, then in Lancashire, where he worked as a labourer on the Liverpool docks. It wasn't until August 1944 that he received his call-up for military service once again, this time joining the General Service Corps operating out of Bradford. But for someone who was described as being reckless and violent throughout the whole of his life, Arthur Thompson had no intention of trying a second successful hit at military life, buckling down and complying with what the nation required, and he was soon back in deeper shit than you can imagine. On the night of Friday the 1st of September 1944, he was admitted to the Westwood Military Hospital near Clayton Heights after being involved in a brawl with three other soldiers outside a pub on Bradford's Manningham Lane. They, like him, were also recruits, and in Thompson's own words, later describing the incident, I had a fight, and I got the worst of it. I was kicked in the eye, on the body, on the knee, and had to have some stitches in my head. There was a great deal of blood lost, so much so that I was confined to bed for eight days. Now, confined to bed is a bit of an exaggeration here, because whilst he was in the hospital, where he was to be officially a patient until the 18th of September, Thompson, along with several other service personnel, visited the nearby Nags Head pub. During this time also, he told fellow soldier Thomas Thompson that he was badly in need of money, being some £18 in debt, and that he intended to burgle the premises to get the money, even if there's a dog there, he claimed. Telling, eh? Ahead of Thompson's trial, a detailed account of his movements between his discharge from hospital and his arrest in Overton were made. He'd spent the evening of Wednesday the 20th of September drinking around Bradford, and very drunk, had at about 11.30pm hailed a taxi which took him to Horton Top Bank, and where he asked to get out about 200 yards short of the nag's head. Still very drunk, he was next seen at Westwood Hospital at about 2am, where he'd stayed for about 30 minutes, and had given the two patients 11 shillings each for a gambling debt, that he didn't owe either. He then flagged down an ambulance after leaving here at 2.40am and got a lift as far as the YMCA shelter 
of Bradford's Moss House to find a bed for the night there. Get himself clean, have a good meal, you know. Here, Thompson had then exchanged more silver coins for notes, explaining that he'd been out drinking and had changed a lot of pound notes during the evening. And during this short stay, had sat and wrote a letter to his commanding officer, Lieutenant Leo Fretwell, referenced the charge he was due to answer the following day concerning the brawl that he'd been hospitalised from on the 1st of September, and which Thompson accepted he was fully to blame for, stating in the letter in part, I was drunk and fully determined to kill them, for no other reason than I'm just a fighting man. I got the worst of it though, and so I'm just leaving. This referred to the fact that he wasn't returning to his unit and indeed was leaving the army for good. Thompson left Bradford the same morning, having first unsuccessfully attempted to get a taxi to Halifax, and then at 6.30am caught himself a bus to Blackshaw Head at Coat Hill on the Burnley Road, where he was remembered for paying bus conductress Hilda Holstead a shilling and asking her, as far as you go. When asked why he wanted to go there at such an early hour, Thompson had replied, just for the ride. However, he'd left the bus when it got to Hebden Bridge. He then travelled from here to Burnley in Lancashire, where he bought an overcoat off farmer Tom Edmondson for two shillings, but threw it away almost immediately, and had then purchased in banknotes some second-hand clothing, including odd shoes, from trader Constance Corallio, and changed into them in her shop, leaving his battle dress behind there. That same afternoon, he was seen in the Barrack Tavern pub in the town attempting to sell a lady's diamond ring, although there were no takers. He travelled to Lancaster the following day, and using the name Cohen, did manage to successfully exchange the ring for a gold wristwatch at John Colthorpe's jewellers there, which in turn, he sold to another jeweller in Morecambe for £4.10, shillings, where he was then staying in a boarding house under the name R. Reed and claiming to be from Preston. At some point that day, Thompson sat and wrote another letter, this time to his former landlady back in Bootle, who he owed £20 to, and which she received the following day. It was a lengthy letter, rambling in parts, but with an overall tone of Thompson having no sort of plan or end game in place, and was considering suicide by rowing out to sea and drowning himself. Part of the letter read, You will know everything I don't by now, but you will never know how much I hate and despise myself for it. That is what I'll be doing as soon as I've posted this letter. There's a rowing boat here waiting for me, and when I finish writing, I'll go out to sea, and it will be my last journey. However, on the following afternoon of Sunday the 24th of September, Thompson was in the Globe Hotel in Overton, near Morecambe, where he told the licensee, George Slater, that he was a discharged soldier and was having a holiday there after winning a £60 raffle prize, the same tale he had told to both jewellers he'd visited in the preceding days. However, the landlord's sharp-eyed daughter, Doris Brooks, recognised the stockily-built man as Thompson from the description that had by that time been widely issued of him, and whom the police wished to interview concerning the Nags Head murder. Therefore, when Thompson went to the bathroom, she aired her suspicions to her father, 
and agreeing with his daughter, the landlord then telephoned police from the kitchen of the hotel, and about 30 minutes later, two officers arrived to speak to Thompson, leading to his arrest, and ultimately, his murder charge. On Tuesday the 5th of December 1944, Thompson was brought before Mr Justice Oliver at York Assizes for a trial that would ultimately last three days and that would see large numbers of the public clamouring for a seat in the gallery. The prosecuting counsel was a First World War Durham Light Infantry and Royal Flying Corps veteran named Geoffrey Hugh Benbow Stretfield Casey and though it would seem that his task appeared a relatively easy one, all of the evidence against Thompson was circumstantial. There were no eyewitnesses to put him entering or leaving the Nags Head pub on the night of Jane's murder. As the jury of ten men and two women were being selected, Thompson piped up, I would prefer not to have any ladies present on the jury, in case they are prejudiced. Therefore, the two female jurors were dismissed and were replaced so the jury consisted of 12 men. Now, Thompson's defence was, because he couldn't deny his movements in the days between the murder and his arrest with so many witnesses as described, all of whom mentioned made up some of the 45 that had been called at his committal hearing, his defence was simply that the murder had been committed at a time when he was in the Westwood Military Hospital, and as a result, it was impossible for him to be responsible for the crime. It must have been somebody else, somebody that Thompson now, for the first time since his arrest, introduced to the tale, and who provides the very tenuous link to the episode's title. That somebody else responsible was a character Thompson now introduced named Buck, who he didn't name any further than this, and who he claimed he'd first met briefly in Chichester back in 1927. The two had not seen each other until a chance meeting for a few minutes four years later, when both were serving prison sentences in Wormwood Scrubs in 1931, and had then not again for 13 years, until Thompson had seen Buck once again when both were drinking in the Dolphin Hotel in Queensbury near Bradford, on Thursday the 14th of September 1944. They'd gone on a pub crawl that evening, even though Thompson barely knew the man and had not seen him for 13 years, and somehow, these two very, very tenuous acquaintances had then agreed to go into partnership, stealing and selling, with Thompson saying, Buck is a stealer of stuff, and I sell it. Thompson claimed this was exactly what they were doing when they met in a Bradford pub early in the evening of the 20th of September with Buck arranging for them to meet again at midnight near Horton Bank Top Tram Depot. He'd kept this rendezvous and indeed met the mysterious Buck, whom he noticed had a blood-stained handkerchief wrapped around his right hand. Thompson had removed this, putting it in his own pocket, and redressed the wound, then Buck, before leaving, had given him £5 and the jewellery that was found in the police car, which Thompson now admitted leaving there, but claiming it was from Buck and that he'd promised to sell for him. He also admitted now that he'd read of the murder at the Nags Head the following day and thought Buck may have been responsible for it, yet there was no indication that he was even going to introduce this mysterious Buck into the case until he was at trial 
as this was the first he had mentioned of the man. Mr. Stretfield, prosecuting, asked him, When questioned by the police, why didn't you tell them that you were not at the Nags Head Inn on the night of the murder, but you knew that it was Buck who had committed the murder? Thompson replied, That would have been helping the police and giving my friend Buck away. I was unwilling to help the police. I wanted to throw them off the scent and to protect Buck because of an unwritten law amongst criminals in this country not to give each other away. Honour amongst thieves. Mr. Stretfield, are you really telling the jury that you ran the risk of being charged with murder in order to protect Buck, whom you'd not seen for 13 years? Does he even exist? Thompson replied, He does exist, and he will come forward if I'm found guilty. Pressed more to elaborate on Buck, Thompson could only describe him as being about 5 foot 4 inches tall with a dark complexion. He didn't know his real name, nor where he lived, and had no idea how to contact him. Asked how he proposed then to get in touch with Buck after being given Jane Colton's jewellery to sell for him, Thompson simply replied that it was worth Buck's while to please him and to get in touch with him, because if Buck committed robberies, Thompson would be the fence to sell the stuff for him, and the both of them would make some very easy money, he claimed. When Mr. Stretfield poured cold water on this tale and dismissed it for the bollocks-sounding account that it is, asking Thompson, Are you the man who broke into the Nags Head Inn, stole the money, and murdered Mrs. Colton? Thompson replied, Definitely not. I didn't murder anyone, and I've never touched the woman in my life. He maintained that Jane Colton had been killed by Buck. He insisted this but certainly not by him. And however nonsense this sounds, all reports suggest that Thompson gave a very able and thought-out performance in the hours he spent in the witness box. Any anomalies in his story that were highlighted, he explained off by saying he was simply a peculiar chap, which does describe him farewell, and indeed was the opinion of most people who came across him. A report by the Leeds prison doctor, Dr. Francis Brisby, formed the opinion that Thompson was mentally unstable, an instability which would be exacerbated by his heavy drinking, but found nothing to suggest insanity, even though there was history of it in his family, as his father had died in a sanitarium in 1940. Whilst awaiting trial, Thompson had been examined by an electroencephalograph at Sutton Hospital to ascertain if he was epileptic or not, the only positive finding being that at one point or another, he had suffered a head injury of some gravity, and there was suggestion of traumatic damage to the left hemisphere of the brain. Indeed, at the end of 1936, he had sustained an injury to his head and was in hospital long enough to suggest this was serious which had left a substantial scar, and shortly after this, he was admitted to Manchester prison for a stretch, where he had an epileptic seizure that was believed to be genuine, and another some three months later after his release, but none since then. Plus, of course, he was in hospital again at the beginning of September 1944 for the head injuries received in the brawl that he had instigated. 
Despite this, the doctor indicated that there was no evidence that Thompson suffered from epilepsy or had any suggestive seizures or attacks. It was his opinion that this lasting instability, which alcohol didn't help with, that was all that was up with Thompson, and on the night of the murder, he had admitted he had drank heavily, consuming somewhere in the region of 14 to 15 pints of beer, which he claimed was not an undue amount for him, since when working as a dock labourer, he'd become accustomed to consuming large quantities of drink. Now, the evidence against Thompson was really purely circumstantial. He could reliably be placed very near to the scene on the night of the murder, and was of the same blood group as Jane's killer, but that was it. No eyewitnesses had seen him entering or leaving the nag's head on the night of the murder. However, circumstantial evidence, if there is an abundance of it, can be persuasive indeed, and while summing up, the prosecution listed off a number of points that pointed to Thompson's guilt, which were as follows. He knew the pub quite well, having been there four or five times in the days he spent recuperating at Westwood Hospital, and was seen near to the Nags Head Inn on the night of the murder. Blood spots of Group A found at the scene matched his. Thompson told lies to account for his movements between midnight and 2am, and attempted to give himself an alibi by saying that at the time of the murder, he was at Westwood Hospital, arriving there at about midnight yet did not arrive there until about 2am, according to the two witnesses he gave money to. He distributed coins to the patients at the hospital and subsequently exchanged more silver for notes at the YMCA, yet before the crime, he'd been short of money and due to disciplinaries against him, had only received £2 in pay that week. Articles belonging to the murdered woman were found in his possession, including rings and jewellery, and he had attempted to dispose of the proceeds of the robbery. When arrested, he attempted to hide the proceeds of the robbery in the police car. At the time of his arrest, he was found to be in possession of a pair of scissors which could have made the marks to the barred doorframe of the nag's head, which was similar to a pair stolen from Jane Colton. He told an incredulous story about a mythical figure named Buck, who was responsible for the murder who he'd met a total of four times in his life, and whom he claimed would come forward to clear his name. Aside from this compelling list, the prosecution described Thompson as a man of very bad character, and detailed his 14 convictions dating back over the previous 17 years, which I alluded to before, and which were mostly for theft. But they gave specific weight to an occasion in 1931, for when arrested on a charge of larceny up in Kendall in Cumbria, Thompson was alleged to have said, I would have done the woman, but I thought I couldn't get away with it. Circumstantial, but compelling, eh? All that Stanley Snowden Casey, defending Thompson, could offer in his summing up was to ask the jury to ponder the following questions. Why had Thompson not fled as far from the scene as possible if he was guilty? Could a man of his size have gotten through the broken kitchen window, which measured 14 inches by 21? And if so, why were no shards of glass found on the battle dress that had been recovered from Constance Coraglio's shop? Were the cuts to his hands substantial enough to have been caused as he had gone through a window? 
and why, when he found out police were looking for him, had he not thrown the incriminating jewellery into the sea? As in the case of Johnson, the jury were having none of this though, and after a three-day trial, on the 8th of December 1944, after 75 minutes deliberation, unanimously found Thompson guilty of murder and made no recommendation to mercy. When asked by Mr Justice Oliver if he had anything to say, Thompson replied, I have this to say, I am not guilty. There are better men and braver men who have gone to their deaths every day for civilization and justice. What does it matter one more? When the judge placed the black cap upon his head and the mandatory death sentence was read out to him, Thompson stood briskly to attention, a grim look upon his face, and upon completion of the judge's address, turned smartly, drill-like, to the left, and unassisted by the two officers flanking him in the dock, walked smartly down the steps leading to the cells below. Following the trial, Extensive efforts to identify who the elusive book may have been were indeed made, and it is reported that such an individual whom Thompson had been on friendly terms with years before did exist. However, but who was in prison at the time of the Nagshead murder, destroying the credibility of Thompson's story. Before this was definitively established, however, police considered that the inspiration may have been from Buckinghamshire, somewhere Thompson had found himself before magistrates on several occasions, or Buxton, a town that featured heavily in his life and that of his father. The theory I prefer is another that was suggested, although again, which is a bit of a stretch, and is that whilst Thompson was serving a sentence of 20 months hard labour for burglary with intent at Strangeways Prison in July 1935, at the same time as he would have been there was an individual on remand who is notorious in the annals of UK crime, Dr Buck Ruxton, a celebrated case that's been covered by several shows that one is too. And it's from him that he got the inspiration for the name Buck from. But who knows. Thompson appealed to the Court of Criminal Appeal following his conviction where his counsel made a great deal of the point that two police officers had given incorrect evidence on oath to the effect that the electric torch belonging to Jane Colton had been found on his person at the time of his arrest, when in fact the torch had been found at a later search of his lodgings. Thompson had denied the torch was found on him at the time of his arrest at his trial, and it was argued that the defence was prejudiced because the jury, no doubt, felt that he was lying when he denied it was in his possession. The appeal judges didn't attach much importance to this point, however, and said they were satisfied that in this case, the jury could not be swayed one way or the other by their decision as to where the torch was in fact found, for it was still in the belongings of the prisoner, and thus dismissed Thompson's appeal on the 15th of January 1945. Sixteen days later, on Wednesday the 31st of January, Arthur Thompson was duly hanged at Armley Prison in Leeds by Thomas Pierpoint and his assistant Herbert Morris, and his body buried the same day in the prison grounds. There is a slight postscript to this tale. 
As I said at the start of the account, the Nags Head is no longer functional as a pub or anything as it's today fenced off and condemned. But when it was still open as a pub, there were many reports over the years of unexplained happenings reported throughout there, such as coins rattling, unexplained footsteps, or items being found mysteriously and inexplicably on the floor, in particular, in the room that Jane was murdered in. Several also claimed to have seen a soldier in Second World War battle dress wandering around, before vanishing, sometimes doffing his hat as he walked past, as though to say thank you. And a previous landlord there from the 1980s regularly used to see a soldier walk into the bar from the direction of the back door, walk across the room and disappear at the front of the pub. It got so regular, reportedly, and usually during closed hours when the pumps were being cleaned, that the landlord would just say hello to the spectre, not bat an eyelid, and would carry on with his work. Spirits there then? or the result of too many spirits of a different kind that evening. The truth is out there, right? I couldn't decide between each of these tales to choose for an episode, and so was going to bring them both under the title More Murder Under Cover of War. And then I was in work the other day, and boom, the title Blame It on the Book popped into my head, and I shaped it around that. Though I thought this may be a tenuous link, as I've written it, it seems the tales do have a fair bit in common. Two brutal and senseless murders committed in the victim's own home, each killer was a serving soldier, neither Johnson or Thompson made any serious effort to flee after their deed, both sat and mailed letters shortly after committing murder, and both were quickly caught, both even shared the same executioner. In the case of Johnson, had he really in an automotive state been influenced to kill Maggie Smales by what he'd read in a question of proof, or was this just making a massive jump and it was simply a case of the potential sex killer in him that had finally just come to the fore that morning and lustful had killed when the sex he wanted was unavailable? I'd believe the latter myself, for it was documented that Johnson loved the company of women yet according to his own words in the letters he wrote, despised them also, because, if they rejected him in any way, he perceived this as teasing him. A very flawed individual indeed, a certainly guilty one, and quite likely a psychopathic one too, though of course, this has to remain speculation. I think it quite possible that Thompson too was of a similar disposition, an unpleasant enough sounding individual and habitual ruthless criminal, though certainly no master one. But the word that pops into my head to describe him, well there are several, but the main one is Chancer. Certainly someone with enough cunning and gall for him to immediately be thinking of his alibi after brutally killing an elderly woman, returning to the hospital he'd been a patient at immediately after committing murder to establish that he was there then and was seen and remembered, but one not smart enough to realise that because of his bemusing reason given for being there, paying debts that he did not owe, he would be remembered, but then so would the exact time of such a bizarre happening, thus destroying his later alibi. The same has to be said with this shamble of bollocks story that he gave at trial when he blamed the mysterious book as being the killer. 
It's a tall story to say the least. But if that's what you come out with to try and save yourself from the rope, I don't know what word fits such a person better than chancer. Dickhead, perhaps. What do you think? Whatever you do think, though, please take from this episode thoughts of Maggie and Jane first and foremost, though. The real reasons each tale should be remembered for. I would love, as always, hearing any thoughts and feedback that you may have concerning the tales I've brought you in the episode Blame It on the Book, which you can do so in the episode thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or through any of the show's social media links or email. I'm always happy to hear from you as and where. Now, it's Patreon week coming up next, so I shall be back with a regular show at the start of next month, which I look forward to you joining me and the peaks for. I thank you so kindly for joining us today. It always means the absolute world that you do. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.